Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, Sheila Zielinski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Sheila Zielinski Show for this Wednesday, May 18, 2016 edition. As you heard, we're playing around with some new intros. I'd love to get your feedback on this one. It is not an easy thing to get an intro made because let me tell you, there's a lot of mixes that I don't like. (laughs) So anyway, after reviewing about 25 of them in the last week, because I'll tell you, the other intros are very loud in the new podcast update. For some reason, the format of those intros were just super loud. So I'm going to experiment with a few intros and hopefully you'll give me your feedback on which one you like. So let me know today if you like that intro. And I thank you for your feedback on that. As everyone knows, well, I guess new listeners might not know this. I broadcast weekdays, that's Monday to Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And I am back on WINB. So a big shout out to all those listening today at WINB. That's World International Network of Broadcasters. And also, if you want to listen to the program in high-quality stereo sound, simply go to WeekendVigilante.com and you can listen to The Daily Show at 6 p.m. Eastern right on the website in high-quality stereo sound. For those new listeners, if you want to find out how to listen to the podcast, do so by going to the Listen tab at WeekendVigilante.com and it does give you a bunch of options there as well as if you have the Weekend Vigilante app, that's right, if you have downloaded the app from the App Store for smart devices, do update your app as we've added some really cool features on there. We heard from you, we made some changes, and we've had some upgrades. So I hope you are enjoying the Weekend Vigilante app. I'm very excited to bring on my guest today. He is always an audience favorite, such an astute, incredible guest It is the one and only Dr. Michael Lake. You know him from the Shinar Directive. He has a new book out this fall. And let me tell you, that is going to be a timely book because it deals with spiritual warfare in a way that I don't think anyone's covered it. And I am just so honored to bring to you my guest today, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Lake. Welcome back to the show. Such a pleasure to have you back on. It's a pleasure to be back with you today. Well, I have to tell you, Dr. Lake, your new series that you are doing, I think you're on number 23 or something, very long series, but what a series this is. I'm going to tell you, that is quite impressive what you've put together there. I want to talk about a show you did, and I think it was number 17, and it's about the walls of Jericho 
and how that overlaps with strongholds. And I really want to get into that show today. And what I like about what you said here is that really, we have to remember that Jesus really raised the standard, but we're not seeing that in the church today. You know, you're talking about the kingdom of God. You're talking about people not walking in the level of the kingdom that they should be. Now, that really struck me as significant, Dr. Lake. Uh, I, I think we're we're in an era that we have probably lost a, a lot of understanding of the Word of God and, and really spiritual realities. And because of that, if you don't know what the enemy can do and you don't understand the spiritual dynamics, you really give the enemy a, a foot up against you. And uh, I think that's where we're finding the church today, especially when you realize that with the releasing of the Watchers at the beginning of the 20th century, we're facing uh, levels of spiritual warfare that the early church never knew. Right. And so God's got to expand our understanding. In the book that I have coming out uh, in September, I actually have to um, uh, unify super strength theory with the Word of God and understanding the three heavens and how that relates to our spiritual makeup and and the the three heavens. uh, We as spiritual beings, we can look at, let's say, the, uh, the tabernacle. And that we we see, I always tell everyone, the tabernacle is the perfect divine template to basically understand everything. And we need to understand that we we are spirit, soul, and body, and few realize that are within our soul, that the soul can have aspects of the spirit, the soul can have aspects of the flesh, but there's also spiritual ground there, there's spiritual territory. And it's in that territory uh, that we can have strongholds. And I think we see the perfect example uh, of the stronghold in Jericho. Uh, really, you know, when, when Israel crossed over the Jordan, it, it's a type and shadow of us entering into salvation. I want, you know, and I'm, I was kind of from the old school that used to teach, you know, once you got saved, that was it, you've arrived. Yeah. And, and no, once you cross the Jordan, man, that's when you really got to roll up your sleeves because you have all these ites that you have to drive out of your life. And we've not been taught that. We've been taught basically get saved, sit down on your blessed assurance, and sit here with your Willy Wonka golden ticket and, and wait for the rapture to happen or for you to die and to go to heaven. And uh, it's really put us in a bad situation. Well, one of the things you just mentioned is the ites. Now, what's really interesting, and I and I thought of this as you were doing this series, of course, you talk about the walls of Jericho, and we're going to get into that, of course, because this, I mean, this is really powerful stuff. But, you know, we're in an incredible age, Dr. Lake, of debauchery, let's just call it what it is, is the order of the day. And one of the things, you know, people get really offended when I talk to them about sin, because of course, people don't want today in this cotton candy church to talk about sin. When you've got a candy coated congregation, they do want to appease the tickling ears. So but what's interesting is when I do a lot of deliverance, of course, and you can cast out a lot of demons, let's face it, but you cannot cast out a stronghold. And Jericho is really a good representation of a stronghold. Even when I think of the Midianites, that's a type of stronghold right there. What he said to the Lord there is, why did we get defeated here? That was really his heart cry, Joshua's heart cry. And I thought it was interesting that the Midianites represent something spiritual. They, to me, represent demonic oppression. The word there is strongholds. Why are there demonic strongholds? Well, it's not because the demons or Satan build strongholds, we build them, don't we? Satan cannot build a stronghold. That's us. 
It is. I think he plants the seed. You know, for some of us, the stronghold could be a lie uh, that we have received, and that spirit comes along with a lie. It could be a wound. Uh, the, the enemy is very, very good at uh, in, in our youth planting things that, uh, that over time we begin building the very walls of our strongholds. Uh, and, you know, no one has ever thought when the Apostle Paul told folks, you know, we have the power of God to pull down strongholds. It, 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 was, it wasn't something in the heavenlies. It was something within them, and he was speaking to believers. And, I mean, that really changes the dynamic because it, it's, it's not something just in the second heaven because he says you, you need to take every thought captive. Right. And so he was dealing with aspects of our soul. And what's interesting, and, and when my book comes out, you'll be able to see this, that uh, that the way that we're made up, the, the, our spirit, soul, and body also kind of flow with the first, second, and third heaven. The second heaven, these denizens of second heaven, the principalities and powers, they can actually influence the souls of men. Mm. That, 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 is, that is their territory. That, that's, where, that's their workshop, if you will. And we, we've not been taught that. We've not been taught how to pull these things down. We've not been taught really how to renew our minds to the Word of God. Uh, instead, what we, we have done in today's church is we are constantly watering down the Word to appease the flesh or the carnal nature rather than crucifying it and learning to overcome it and to drive these things out of our life. Well, and that's why I thought that Jericho, this whole teaching was so good. Now, of course... You've got the inner and outer wall there. And, and of course, when you were reading in the Lexham Bible Dictionary, I mean, what a really interesting overview it gives you there, what it says about the manner of Jericho's destruction. Tell the listeners about that. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, The thing that really uh, jumped out at me when I was doing the research, and this was kind of pivotal, is that it, it shared that the, the wall was of the final Bronze Age city of Jericho is referred to as a Cyclopean wall. And man, when I saw that word cyclopean, it absolutely ran red flags up for me. And when you look at the work that L.A. Marzulli's done, David Flynn, Steve Quayle, all these guys, when you run into cyclopean architecture, you're running into antediluvian architecture of the Watchers and the Nephilim. Well, and you know, we don't even have the technology today to do what they did back then. I mean, I always say to people, how do you get these precision angles in these megalithic structures that would make Newton salivate with a copper chisel? I always go back to that question. It's, well, it's clear it was angel tech, and by that I mean fallen angel technology with these, as you said, antediluvian or pre-flood structures. Now, Jericho was an ancient citadel of the Nephilim. Get into that. Yeah, when when I when I began looking at initially, it said the the construction dates of the city were during the Third Bronze Age, which is around 1600 BC, and I'm thinking, okay, that's that's not late enough in history, and I began doing some searching on Wikipedia, and there was an archaeologist named Kenyon uh, that ran radio radiocarbon dating of some of the materials in the fourth level of the foundation. And found out that it dates back to uh, what he dated at, at uh, 7825 BC. And sometimes, you know, carbon dating can fudge, and, and there's all kinds of things that go on with that. But definitely the foundation of Jericho, of those walls of Jericho, were Nephilim. And you, you, you have two basic kind of structures with, with Nephilim architecture you have the huge monolithic stones that, you know, may weigh, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of pounds. And then you can have some smaller ones, but they're the ones that are all really the weird odd shape that are fused together in such a way without mortar that uh, you can't even slip a piece of paper between them after all these years. And so, like what we have seen in many other areas of the world, is you you have these antediluvian foundations that uh, were able to survive the flood, and then later on you have inferior building on top of that by the civilizations after the flood. But the foundations are very important. And what, what the people of Jericho did is they built or rebuilt that city and those walls on the ruins of a Nephilim stronghold, which, which means that that place was demonically charged beyond your belief. God, I believe that God had uh, Israel attack that place first because this was the, uh, the occult magnet, if you will, or power source for that entire area. That's the reason why you had, you had the Gibberim and the, and, and the different types of giants that were inhabiting the land is because there was a spiritual stronghold and a, fair, a spiritual foundation still in place that attracted them and empowered them and gave them the ability to inhabit the land. Well, and let's just kind of piece this in here, too, because it's hard to imagine how you get some of these angles in this andesite that's really hard. I mean, some of this stuff is like seven on the Mohs hardness scale. So it's hard to not only imagine how you get these. You just said you can't slide a paper under it, let alone move it from, you know, 100, 200 miles away. So whether it's the Great Stones in France, Belbeck, Stonehenge, Avebury, Mardenhenge, pick your prehistoric structure here. It's glaringly obvious that we're looking here, though, Michael, at technology that would be pretty hard-pressed to duplicate. But what's interesting is the dark side of these antediluvian structures and how that ties in with the pre-flood and post-flood giants. That all ties in to what's coming, doesn't it? It does. In fact, I believe that even the the Great Pyramid of Giza, there's so many different theories about who built it. I personally believe that it was most likely built by the watchers. You know, some say it was Enoch and a lot of different things. The fusing process, the, the, uh, the, even though there were, there were blocks rather than the cyclopean, I think the differences between the way that the parents built, you know, the watchers and the way that their children made their own distinct mark on the world by the way that they built. Uh, but all these things are, are, are just, are so significant. When, when you look at if you're, if you're going to begin to take over an area for God, you've got to go, first of all, against the mystery, religion, occult system, and power source. Right. You know, we, we've never really thought what a stronghold is. Historically, and you go way back from the time of, of, uh, of Joshua here with Jericho, you can go all the way up to, uh, you know, cowboys and Indians with the forts that we used to have here in America when we were settling an area. That that stronghold, you you had a military force or whatever that was that was inhabiting that, but you also had people living in the outlying areas so that whenever they would go under attack, they would run into the stronghold for safety. And a lot of times that's what we have going on in our lives is that when when you and I do spiritual warfare and we come into somebody's life and we cast out a devil, you're not casting it out out of the stronghold. You're catching one that didn't get a chance to get into the stronghold before you came along. Right. 
That's very, very true. And I think the point is, is that what these structures have in common and how we're going to tie this into Jericho, not unlike Moloch, Baal, this was where blood sacrifices were done. And let's face it, in America, Michael, abortion, that's occultism on steroids. That is present day occultism that we were dealing with back in Jericho, isn't it? Absolutely. They, the abortions, child sacrifices were going on, and many times they would take uh, the babies that were sacrificed into their gods, and they would literally embed them into the walls to create greater occult power to protect their city from intruders. And so, I mean, every every heinous thing that you could think of was going on in Jericho. That's one of the reasons when God said, uh, destroy everything that's there. Don't don't take anything. I don't care if it's gold. It, it can't be cleansed by fire. Everything is to be left alone. And uh, really, isn't that the way it is with, with our lives? That God says, listen, whatever whatever the enemy has done in your life, you want it all destroyed. You don't want to take any part of it and say, well, yeah, but I like that part of it because it kind of served me well. No, it didn't. It was just, it was just the, the lure, you know, the, the worm on the end of the, of the hook to pull you in and to take you over. And so I, I think part of the deliverance process and in getting into the Word is discovering everything that's really of the enemy and systematically eradicating all of it and not allowing any of it to remain in our lives. Well, and that really ties in with Joshua 6.26, what he's saying there. Then Joshua made them take an oath at the time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. That's really significant, isn't it? It is. And in fact, he goes on with that curse. He said, you know, when uh, when he lays the foundation, he'll, he'll lose his firstborn. And when he finishes the wall, uh, the, the walls, he'll lose his youngest. And... It's interesting that it was during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel that a man rose up and rebuilt the walls, and it exactly fulfilled the way that Joshua said that when he set the foundational stone, he lost his firstborn child. When he finished and hung the gates to the city, he lost his youngest child. Well, and that's, I think, the piece in that that's significant. If a man is audacious enough to rebuild up something evil that God wants taken down. That's the issue there. Now, you mentioned Ahab and Jezebel. That really paints a picture of the moral climate really there. There's a lot of present-day prophets of Baal out there, isn't there, given the good old script? There is. And one of the things that uh, that I bring forth in the new book coming out, too, is we've, we've never stopped to understand what fuels the kingdom of darkness which it, it's, it's iniquity itself. And the, the more child sacrifice, the more evil that darkness can breed into the world, the more people that they can get sin to sin, especially those that claim to be believers, because when a believer sins, it's actually a greater defilement than a sinner sinning because a sinner does nothing but sin. That's why he's a sinner. You know, All of that actually empowers everything the enemy's doing. And... Uh, you know, if you, if you really understood that whenever you sin, that you're empowering the demonic forces to come into your life and you're, depo- you're empowering uh, the kingdom of darkness to take over your family or to take over your community or to take over your nation, maybe you would view sin differently. Well, and it's not just that, but it's not just viewing sin differently because repenting, that word there, if you study it out, it doesn't mean just feeling bad for something, does it? 
No. In fact, one of the words in Hebrew is shub, which means to return back to the right way. You've got to repent and do a 180. And in many times the um, the rewiring of our brains away from sin is by walking and begin doing the opposite of demanding ourselves. I repent. I'm setting that aside. Father, I ask that you would forgive that in the name of Jesus. I ask that you'd cleanse, cleanse me by the blood of Jesus. Now from this day forward, I choose to do righteousness in place of that sin. And when we do that, then God begins to use those very steps that we take in righteousness to walk us out of the hole that we dug ourselves in. Well, and Paul essentially says, if you sin, now this is very contrary to the cotton candy coated congregations today, but if you sin, you're going to end up in the lake of fire. That wouldn't be very popular in some of these howdy duty churches, would it? No, and we have um, we, we have totally uh, gotten away from from what grace is. And I'm getting ready to uh, teach this coming week on the five aspects of grace. And everybody loves, you know, unmerited favor. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that's actually the thinnest, that's the veneer on the outside of the second level of grace. That That's because, because it's unmerited favor. God's going to touch you with saving grace, not because you deserved it, but because you gave everyone unmerited favor. And you've got to you've got to allow saving grace and that repentance to work before you can get to transforming grace. And then once the grace begins to transform you, then you begin moving into empowering grace. And all of a sudden, that unmerited favor and that supernatural grace of God begins gives you the power not to sin and to walk in the ways of God. And when you begin letting that really get established in your heart, then it moves you to the fifth level of grace, which is enduring grace. The Bible says, he who holds out to the end shall be saved. Well, I believe in the grace of God. Don't get me wrong. But the grace message that we are hearing today is that there's absolutely no consequence for sin. It's a license to sin. You can live however you want, and God looks the other way. But that is not how it works. Grace is not a license to sin, is it? No, it's not. In fact, what we've been saved from, in fact, you know, a lot of ministers, they can't define what sin is. You know, and, and I've because I've, I I train ministers and I've, I went to conferences. Tell me what sin is, guys. Uh, well, whatever hurts the heart of God. Well, that's kind of nebulous. I need you know I need definitions here. <laughs> uh, you know what did what did the Apostle John say thirty years after the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry? He said the violation of God's commandments is sin. God was wise enough that He defined it for us. This is sin, this is not. This is sin, this is righteousness. This is clean, this is unclean. It's all in black and white for us so that we don't have to guess. And so as we begin to really understand and move back, the cross saved us not from hell. That's a byproduct. He saved us from sin. Yeah, well, the wages of sin is death, right? The law of reaping and sowing, it's still in effect. Jesus said to that woman, go and sin no more. But this is the frightening part of what's going on today. Because if you're in adultery, hey, God understands. We live in stressful times. But this is where the once saved, always saved doctrine is really problematic, isn't it? It is. I love a book I just read by uh, Dr. Kenneth Johnson where he gets into Calvinism and Gnosticism, and it is really an eye-opener. Calvin actually pulled from the the Gnostics of of the first and second century to combat the Pope, 
and what the Pope was doing that he got, you know, that, you know, grace is irresistible, grace is irrevocable. It actually comes from the, the Nag Hammadi that teaches that there's these emanations that come down and that if you're, that if you're given one of those emanations, you're guaranteed to go to heaven. It actually comes out of Gnosticism, which even the Apostle John so hated. Yes. That in his old age, tradition tells us that when he went to this city, there was a well-known Gnostic drinking from the well, and even though he was an old man and thirsty from his journey, he refused to drink out of that same well, fearing that people would identify him with that Gnostic. Yeah, that's problematic because we really have been drinking from the Gnostic fountain for too long here. Absolutely. Uh, We have gotten to the place to where we're basically teaching that grace and the cross changed God. Well, you know what's interesting? God made us in his image, but in society, we've really made God into our image, haven't we? Isn't that idolatry? (laughs) If you have a God that does not mirror the God of the Bible, the whole Bible, you know, the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament. It's like, oh, the nice Jesus of the New Testament and that mean old God from the Old Testament. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He didn't change. God is unchangeable. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So it's us that changes, not God. Absolutely. And as long as we're, you know, if we're preaching that the cross changed God, now he has to accept us any way that we want to be, we have rendered the gospel powerless. Well, not only is the gospel rendered powerless today, but so are Christians. Believers are pretty much powerless for the most part. Believers ought to be transforming the world, but instead the world is transforming believers. We have to acquiesce to their agendas. Since when is bathrooms the talk of the day? How far have we landslid into an avalanche of debauchery when transgenderism and men going into bathrooms, that's the talk of the day? Uh, it, it's, it's beyond my comprehension that we're, we're having to deal with bathrooms. Even the, the progressives refuse to realize is the entire world right now is laughing at America at our stupidity. We're, we're not protecting our young. You know, and this is not a, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm never for treating anybody bad. I can tell them that sin's going to destroy them without treating them bad, okay? But this whole thing of, of, of me saying, okay, today I'm going to decide I'm going to be a woman, so this is a civil rights thing. Well, let's, let's take it into the last civil rights movement. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a tall, fat white man, okay? What would happen if I would say... I've changed my mind. I'm I'm African-American now. And I begin going on about the struggles of what it is like to be an African-American living in the inner city in America. Wouldn't that so offend the black community and rightfully so? How, how dare you? You cannot decide what color your skin is. You are either born that way or you're not. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have a, a solution for the bathroom issues. Stand in front of a mirror naked, and if you've got a penis, you go in the men's bathroom. It's that simple, really, though, isn't it? It is. And all of this is an attack against Christianity in America. You know, it's you, you can go back to Roe versus Wade with what a masonically heavy Supreme Court did with right. abortion in America. Even though the 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 very girl that they used to get that set up has dedicated her life whole life to get it overturned because that's not what she wanted. They they chose a cause that they could get something else done, and they just simply used these people 
as fodder. My, I guess what my fear is, and this, this is kind of off the subject, but we, we need to open up our eyes. We, we have the same liberal left that's promoting LGBT rights. At the same time, they're promoting Islam in America. Now, think about that for a minute. If Sharia law comes to America, the first ones to be killed, according to Sharia law, are the LGBT. So it's not really about standing up for their rights or standing up for Islam or standing up. All these things are simply engines of chaos so that they can begin transforming society to remove uh, the, the ways of God, uh, the very definitions of, of really what our society was, was based on. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that, you know, I, I think the Constitution is a great document, but that Constitution would have been powerless if it not had been built upon the great revivals of Edwards and Whitfield and many others. Otherwise, we would not have been a moral of enough people to have had a republic. You just mentioned Islam. We've got good old CFR, huckster, purpose-driven heresy, Rick Chrislam Warren out there. It's really all about counterfeiting God's order here, isn't it? Satan's never had an original thought in his life. But what's interesting, and this kind of goes back to 2 Corinthians 10.4, Paul is talking specifically about the pulling down of strongholds, there has never been a time in our history, I don't think, Dr. Lake, that we really need to be dealing with these ubiquitous strongholds all around us. Part of the, the understanding of this, and, and see each one of us, that this is one of the things that we're taught in, in with, with Jericho. Each one of us have the sin. I, I love the way that the writer of Hebrews writes this. You have the sin that so easily besets you. Why is, is it the sin? Because it's the sin that empowers the stronghold. It's what gives it its power. It's what's keeping you from victory. It's what's keeping you really from, from victory, from properly understanding the word, uh, from getting your life together the way that it's supposed to be. In fact, it's skewing your understanding and perception of the Word of God. And that, I think that's why we, we have a lot of pulpits today, Sheila. The, those men may be born again, but their strongholds are preaching and not the Holy Spirit through them. Well, that's a good segue, the Holy Spirit. The resonance of God in us is really that Holy Spirit. And now this resonance, when you talk about divine harmonics, shouting praise, you know, think about the marching around Jericho. I think about that whole 365-degree pulling down of a stronghold, essentially, wasn't it? It was, and, and if um, with listening to Steve Quayle, one of the things that he has hypothesized in all his research is that the Nephilim had nasal cavities in which they could create a resonance that would levitate or create an anti-gravity field around these large blocks. Because, I mean, you know, some of these monolithic stones, uh, even if you're 30 foot tall, they're still pretty heavy. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and not only that, you know, when you when you when you study the science of cymatics, sound can affect solid objects. I've even seen them just simply using sound can actually bore through solid rock, uh, in some of the cymatics uh, experiments that they have done. And so there, there's there's a power with that. So if these things were if they used a a sound wave resonance that was demonically charged to set the foundation stones that the walls of Jericho was built on. I think it's divine justice that God had his people after marching seven days. And what's interesting, too, when you date this back, they were doing it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just how the feasts tie in with, with what God does. 
And so on that on that seventh day, when they shouted, God used his people as a harmonic weapon that was specifically designed to tear down what the enemy had built. Well, essentially divine harmonics, you could say. Absolutely. Well, the entire universe is based on divine harmonics. When you understand th- string theory, when you go down to the smallest element or a quark, there is a filament or a string resonating on the inside of it. And I always have believed that that is, the, at the subatomic level, the entire universe is still resonating at the voice of God. But what we need to realize, too, in this is that with every stronghold, there is a specific resonance or there is a specific tactic or wisdom necessary to bring it down. Because, it, you know, it, because it just can't be, you know, you're just going to praise everything down. Uh, I remember one of the, uh, one of the, there was a charismatic minister that everything was praised, you know, praise God because you're sick and then you get healed and, and all these different things. As he was teaching all this, he also left his wife for his secretary and, you know, all these things while he's teaching, praise gets you victory over everything. Praise can't do anything if you, if you don't repent and get right with God because it's simply, it's simply mouth service. There's a, there's a difference in making a noise and almighty God begin to breathe life and anointing and power through what you say. Well, in this day with ubiquitous false teaching and false doctrine, you really better start tuning into that resonant frequency of the Holy Ghost. You better learn to hone in, dial into the Holy Spirit, especially in these times. Absolutely. I remember at at 13 being trained to be a Baptist minister for us, Spirit-filled, Spirit-filled at 17. Uh, One of the the Baptist preachers said, he said, guys, if you're preaching and it makes their flesh happy— You've missed God. If you make their flesh very uncomfortable, but their spirits get excited, then you're exactly where you need to be. Yeah, I totally agree. That's good. Well, and oddly enough today, it's almost like the person who's preaching the most heresy today, the most doctrinally unsound garbage, those are the ones of the biggest congregations. Ironic. Absolutely. We're, we're in a time where the uh, prophets of, of Baal under Jezebel are able to sit at the king's table. But, you know, my heart goes out for the pastor who maybe have 20, 30, 80, maybe 100 people. And he labors day in and day out and teaches the word of God without compromise, no matter the pressures. Because I've, I've heard from a lot of people say, you know, if you don't start preaching like so-and-so on, on their program on, on, you know, whatever Christian satellite station, I'm leaving. And these, and these guys have held the ground and said, well, then you need to go find a church or preachers like that, but it's not the word. Those guys I really take my hat off for because they, they, may, not, they may not be building mega churches, but they're building mega believers. And, uh, you know, if you're listening to the show tonight and you have a pastor that has been faithful in it and will not compromise and call sin, sin and righteous righteousness, you need to honor him. Back him up. Thank him. And uh, we, we need to get we need to move away from this that God wants to make us all millionaires and we can do whatever we want. No, we can't. Uh, Sheila, I found out the, the more I grow in God and the closer I get to him, the narrower that path gets. And right now I'm walking a bicycle path. But uh, I, I found out narrow is where the power is. And, uh, you know, sometimes, Sheila, I've also found that a lot of times we blame things on the devil when it's not the devil. He's already got us set on autopilot. Well, I just think there's too many in the body of Christ 
they're relying on someone else to do their warfare for them. God wants his people ready and equipped for war. It's a matter of life and death. Spiritual eternity, that's dependent on people getting this. Because when you look at Ephesians 2.10, you think we're God's workmanship here, his His own handiwork. We're recreated in Christ Jesus, born anew. And how many people really get that? They don't. What What is the highest form of worship? If I can just get the shout just right, you know, if I can just get the, the, the goosebumps just right, you know, that's the no. Hebraically, the highest form of worship is the study of God's Word. Because what you're doing is you're, you're studying the Word to find out what to get out of your life and what to do in your life that actually brings God honor and pleases Him. That's the bottom line here is what pleases God, because, I mean, we're a nation of selfies. Think about that. All these narcissistic, self-indulgent, self-perpetuating, a self-indulgent culture, that is idolatry. And if you think about what it says there in Judges chapter 6, 11, there's something really interesting. When when Joshua was asking God why they were defeated, what did the Lord say? He delivered them into the hand of the Midian for seven years. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. There was sin in the camp. And that is very significant because in this day of so much apostasy fused with hyper grace, we're not dealing with the sin in the camp, are we? No, we're not. And we can even go back to the words of the Apostle Paul. It's a very famous quote, you know, do not be unequally yoked together. Yes. And we always talk about that in marriage. And that that's very good advice for marriage. But he was talking about what you participate in, what you allow into your life. And he goes on to say, you know, what, what fellowship hath be all with the temple of God? But then he goes on, and he says, now, listen, God's wanting to walk in your midst. And that's what we really need right now, isn't it? We need him to walk in our midst. I don't want him far away. I want him in the camp. That's where the safety is going to be. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament tells these Gentiles, don't touch the unclean. Now, in the King James thing is italicized, which means it's not in the original language. And they just kind of put that in there to try to make sense. But by the, the, by what the Apostle Paul said, unclean, he basically, in that one word, pointed back to everything in the Old Testament that God said was unclean. Sexual conduct, all the different things that God said was unclean. He said, guys, if you want God to walk in your midst, you got to set aside the unclean and not allow it in the camp. When you do, God has been waiting on the outside of the camp, waiting for you to get that excrement of Babylon out of your midst so that he can come in and tabernacle with you. That's what we're going to need in this day and this hour, is we got to see these strongholds pulled down by not tolerating them within our soul, drive out the ites, get out the unclean, so that Almighty God can begin walking in our midst. That's where revival is going to be. That's where safety, provision, and everything that we need. But God will not come in where things are unclean. And that's where we really need to, again, get the sin out of the camp. And I really believe that sin opens the door. It gives the enemy permission to wreak havoc in people's lives. That's why people are in bondage. That's why people build a stronghold. A stronghold gets built on the way that you perceive and view sin. Instead of running to God, they run away from God because of the guilt, because of the fear. God said, hey, there's sin in the camp. Joshua cried out to him. Joshua went to God. 
that's a good pattern for where we should going because how do we show the world the victorious life when we're living in defeat ourselves? People can't see this. Where is the disconnect here, Dr. Lake? I think sometimes we just don't get it. Our theologies aren't working. They they have been built and and have and have been influenced. I I think ever since the I, I look at the Reformation as the beginning of God fixing things. But at the same time, he you know we were supposed to start with the Reformation to move forward. You know, when the Reformation, we just had to learn about how how to get born again. When Martin Luther discovered the just shall live by faith, did you know he may have been the only man on the planet born again? And so we had to start there, and the Bible says God adds precept upon precept, layer, you know, layer upon layer, here a little, there a little. And so we had to add from that, okay, we, we add the integrity of God's Word and all that they did to get the Word of God back in the people's hands. Then we learned about sanctification, we learned what sin was, and we're, we're constantly moving away from Mystery Babylon, which is, which is uh, embodied in really the Catholic Church and what they're doing. And at the same time, there has been this counter cultural movement of the mystery religions to get back in. And that's the reason we are where we are today. We have a we have a blending of the word of God and the mystery religions that we can you know we can claim our traditional interpretation of the word or just our traditions that have such a blending that it keeps us in bondage but just gives us enough that we think we've arrived. Oh, we've got a mixture, all right. You use that word there, blending. That is so true. It's just an eclectic mishmash of whatever. People are biblically starving. They're totally anemic because of what you just talked about there, which is a good segue to this. If we are not spiritually equipped and immersed in the word now and able to handle these attacks what is that going to look like when all these entities get released and the demonic affliction is darker than we've ever seen before? Because even the demons from the New Testament, they've got nothing on what's coming. We need to realize that since the 20th century, there, uh, Satan's A-team, the Watchers, have been basically in, in timeout. And they weren't even allowed into the game. Not since Genesis 6. They've not been allowed into the game. And now they're a part of it. So we're we're not only fighting what the Apostle Paul had to deal with, we're fighting stuff that he probably couldn't even imagine unless God revealed it to him. And so we're, we're, we've, we have got to up our game. We have got to quit playing with grace. Every one of us have to take the, have to take the responsibility before God to get in his word, all of it, Genesis to Revelation. Every true doctrine— Every truth of the Word of God starts in the Torah. That's where the definitions are, the principle of first mention. You find the very first reference to it, God gives you the definition, and then it begins to expand from there that you get more insights to it. It never changed the original definition. And so people that um, are just New Testament people, that's what I used to be for years. I used to tell people, you know, I've wore out New Testaments and, and uh, in my Bibles that I've had and very rarely ever went past, you know, past Mark. Uh, what I did is I took the entire New Testament out of context because I had no definition. So it's what it, and see, that's the, that's the problem we have today is we're writing our own definitions instead of asking God what the definitions were because everybody in the New Testament were going by the definitions that God had already established. Yeah, you've got to take the entire Bible together. You can't just pick pieces out of the New Testament, that's for sure. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word is Jesus Christ in black and white. And before you run to some preaching video or you run to a devotional, you should be running directly to the Word of God. Absolutely. And we need to understand, you made one comment, you know, the devil can't touch us unless the Father gives him permission. That's true if you have everything in your life under the blood and you have no sin in your life. But when you willfully sin, you've tore down your own hedge. You know, it's it's like, you know, I have a computer, you know, and, and we still have computers that have the Ethernet ports on the side. Your computer is secure unless you allow something to pl- uh, something outside to plug into it. There, there's always a purpose behind this, and when the devil tempts you, it's not just to get you to sin, it's to get access to your life. So that when I willfully sin, I refuse to repent, I enter into stubbornness with that, basically what I've done is I've turned off my firewall and I've let him plug into my Ethernet port. Well, that's really a good analogy. Wow. And really, you talk about habitual sin. We've talked about that before. That becomes something different, doesn't it? It does. It can actually, it it becomes the iniquity force or the iniquity nature in the earth. When you sin so much that it becomes a part of your nature, it literally gets encoded into your DNA. (laughs) Did you know that it can actually pass in your genetics to the next generation? That that's part of the sins of the fathers, that you'll see uh, certain bloodlines. And, and I've seen it to where, let's say, uh, a baby was given up at birth and, you know, raised by another family that was totally the opposite of his birth parents. But they didn't know to pray over that baby and, and to break these things. Did you know that child will gravitate to the, to the exact same sins as his mom and dad that he never knew and never met? It's right in our DNA, just like generational curses go down the bloodline true, right? That's right, and, and there's two sides to generational curses. One is, you know, there's a familiar spirit that's, you know, trying to enforce that in your life. And the other side of that generational curse is because of the attitudes and the different things in your household, you're trained to think by that, by that generational curse. And so you can pray and break that generational curse, but unless you begin getting into the Word and retraining your mind to do the opposite of it, to rewire your brain, You've not really broken the curse because you're still thinking cursed. Well, and you've got to not only deal with sin in the camp here, Michael, but people are playing games at the things of God. What did Elijah say at the showdown with the prophet of Baal? He said, how long will you falter between two dichotomies here? You can't play at the table of idols and really serve God. I mean, people are practicing yoga, Vedic Hinduism, bringing occult objects in their home. Why do you think Hitler secured and scoured the planet for ancient relics? I mean, all these things are occult charge. People say, well, Sheila, you know, occult power cannot attach itself to objects. Look at people's homes, Michael, and it is frightening. People that think that occult power cannot attach itself to physical objects have absolutely no understanding of the occult. Yeah, and that really brings us full circle right back to Jericho. That really was ground zero for occultic power, wasn't it? It was. That we're made of physical matter, okay? Just like the rock or or whatever, metals or whatever else, or dirt or whatever, if a human being can house a demonic energy, a demonic force, you're, you're made up of physical matter, that your physical matter uh, has created a house for this thing. And so there, there's, no real, there's no reason why it cannot uh, inhabit a land, it cannot inhabit an, an object. You know, when, uh, when we bought our property, we moved up here 15 years ago, 
the first thing I did is I went to all four corners of my property. I anointed it. I dedicated it to God. I asked God to forgive the sins that were ever committed on that property. If the, you know, because you know we're out in the middle of the Ozarks. You know, there there could have been you know Indian slaughter or cowboys. You know, all all the different deaths and violence and everything that was in in those early days. Uh, no telling you, we could go way back in time, and there's we found out there's Nephilim uh, roaming here in America. There's no telling what they did. So I prayed over my property, and I asked God to forgive it since the beginning of time, since the beginning of him when he first said, let there be light. Until the time that I took possession of my property, I asked him to forgive every sin that was ever committed on there. Once I did that, then I stood in my authority, and I commanded every demonic spirit that had been attached to that land because of the sin to leave. Excellent. Well, I have a prayer in my new book that's coming out in July. It's called Power Prayers, Warfare That Works. And it talks about, I actually have a prayer in there for cleansing your possessions and property, because really, I mean, that's important to understand how these things come in and how they can operate in our lives. And speaking of books, I want you to tell people about your book coming out in September. What's really the the quintessential piece to this book. I think this is one of the, just so you know, this is not flattery. This is the book of all books. And I think this is really the most needed book right now, Michael. Actually, I'm going to change your paradigm. We're going to, we're going to go back to a biblical worldview that has a supernatural understanding that understands the dynamics of the first, second, and third heaven. Uh, we're going to, we're going to discover uh, what happened, really happened to Lucifer when he sinned. Uh, I even bring up the possibility that the um, falling of the angels may have been progressive, not all instantaneous when he fell. Uh, we bring up all the different characters from the Nekesh in the garden to the watchers to principalities and powers, uh, as well as begin to understand what really empowers the kingdom of darkness. Because until you do that, you can't uh, – and, and you know, I'm ex-military, and although I was admin, I still had to study the doctrines of war. And, you know, one of the first things you do is you have, you've got to discover what the enemy's power source is or where its supply lines are, and you've got to cut off the supply lines. And we don't even know what the kingdom of darkness operates on. Wow, that sounds exciting. And to take that further, what war was ever won in offensive mode, right? Oh, no. Uh, offensive, defensive. Uh, we, we've got to understand the weapons of our warfare. And one of the things that I, I, I build in the book is just because you're saved does not mean you get to put on the armor of God. When you look at it, this is this is God's armor. Now, in the same book that the Apostle Paul wrote, you know, put on the whole armor of God, he first goes into this dialogue that, believer, you need to put off the old man. You need to put off the old works. You need to put off all these things, and you need to put on Christ, which what he's calling them to is a life of holiness. You've got to begin getting rid of this junk that was in you, the attitudes, the practices, all these things that that came with sin. You've got to get them out of your life. You've got to become that vessel of honor that cleanses himself, that purges him, himself. It's, it's not only not doing, but it's also doing the right things. If, if I put off unrighteousness, i got to begin putting on righteousness, and righteous acts are defined clearly in the Word of God. That's putting on Christ. And only once you really put on Christ can you begin to put on the armor of God, and every one of them goes in sequence. The very first piece the apostle talks about is the belt of truth. If you don't start with God's truth, you can't put on the armor. It won't hold together. 
And today, Sheila, we have we have people on the spiritual war battlefield because I'm hearing from people all over the world that are basically getting beat to death on the battlefield. They're doing spiritual warfare, but it's not working, and they're getting beaten to death. And the reality is they have never been taught how to put off the old man and how to put on the new. And they've never been taught on how to, you know, you can sit and pray all day long. I put on the helmet of salvation. I put on the, the breastplate of righteousness, yada, yada, yada. And you're, 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 it's all lip service because it's not by what you say it's by what you're doing that you begin putting the armor on and unfortunately we have so many people today that are running around naked on the battlefield thinking they're wearing armor well and you said something very very astute on my show a couple years ago you said how do we get an a-team when we're working with at best a d-team for god that's a frightening thought too isn't it it is. We 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 we're we're in a in a technological age where we have more information at our fingertips. You know, could you imagine what Sir Isaac Newton could do? I mean, no, he invented calculus and he wrote theological books with with his, you know, with with quill and pen and yeah. the books that he had. Can you imagine him basically having access to almost everything in print in a in a word processor? What he could have accomplished? It's because th- there was a time that we understood that. We need to get in the Word of God, and we need to be we need to be those stewards that really dig in and research. And with and with the the computers today, you can say I don't know Greek and Hebrew all day long, but you can press a button and find out what the what the Greek or, or Hebrew definition is and learn to dig a little. But with with all these tools at our disposal, it's inconvenient for us to get in the Word. That not only has to stop. There's a frightening thing when you've got. Two hours for Facebook and 10 minutes for God's Word, that's very disturbing too, isn't it? It is. I make a lot of people mad because I spend three minutes a day on Facebook. I don't have time for that stuff. There's there's too much to pray about. There's too much to research. I'm working on the third book on on because uh, each one of these books will build on the, on, on the previous one. And when I, when I get to the third one, the third one's all about unlocking the armory. Wow. And uh, I'm really excited about that. In fact, I want to read your book because maybe I can use some of it in what I'm doing. I always always believe that each one of us is a specialist in the kingdom. And so specialists get together and consult and begin putting things together. Mm, I agree with that. Yeah, we all have our own little jigsaw puzzle piece for the big, broader puzzle. For the new listeners that are tuning in, Michael, in the waning moments, give out your information and how people can follow along with this amazing series that you're in the middle of teaching right now. Uh, we have we have our own YouTube channel. It's at youtube.com slash biblical life. And we have, I think, about 300 videos up there so far. Uh, right now we are in Understanding the Kingdom series. I'm, I'm editing ver- uh, number 23 right now, uh, which all I need to do is teach one more session, and this will be the longest series I've ever taught in my life. Wow. Well, give people the name of your book coming out this fall. That's the Shirarith Imperative, and that's 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 the that's the answer of the remnant that's going to uh, that's going to be God's counter to Nimrod's imperative that was revealed in the first book, and and then the third book is really going to be understanding the kingdom, understanding how to unlock uh, the armory of God. Neshech is Hebrew for the armory, and the minute that we were born again, the armory, the armory was deposited there. But you know, the truth is, you don't give someone who's not mature, you don't give them access uh, to tactical weapons. Mm. 
And so we have been running around with pea shooters thinking that we're doing spiritual warfare. We've not even gotten to the M16s yet. Or any of you out there that are military, you know, there's there's one five five howitzers that can take out the side of a mountain that God is saying, until you mature in me, that you have gotten sin underneath your feet. And that when I tell you, change by three degrees this way and two degrees up, and you will only fire when I tell you to fire, you're never going to get access to some of the most powerful weapons of spiritual warfare because it takes maturity, a a single-mindedness towards your king for God to allow you to have access to that. What I I see as I I read the book of Revelation, as I read the book of Daniel, I see the the shimmerith, the, the remnant, are able to stand toe-to-toe against the Antichrist. And even when he's at the zenith of his power, the Word of God says they will know their God, which means to be passionately in love, like like people, you know, a couple on a honeymoon, that much in love with Almighty God. And literally, when you take apart the Hebrew, it means that they can create great exploits. They, they can create the miracle. They can create the, the, the situation because they're so in tune with God that God uses them as a mechanism for change and empowerment even in the midst of, of what the Antichrist is doing. And that, that's my heart. That's what I'm after. I want to see us reach our potential in Christ instead of playing in the kiddie pool all the time. Well, at kingdomintelligencebriefing.com, folks, bookmark that. Michael, we are so looking forward to your next two books. It, it, just incredible information that you give people. Thank you for all the work you do for the body of Christ. And I do hope you'll come back and see us soon. I will. It's been a lot of fun chasing uh, chasing some rabbits today. <laughs> chasing rabbits. <laughs> Thanks again, Dr. Lake. God bless. God bless. Folks, that was Dr. Michael Lake. His information is linked on today's bio at weekendvigilante.com. Do check out his handiwork. And we certainly look forward to the Sherith Imperative coming out this September by Dr. Tom Horn, the Skywatch crew. That's going to be in September, so we'll really be looking forward to that. And if you've not got Green Gospel, well, simply go to greengospel.ca, pick up my book that the renowned climatologist Dr. Timothy Ball says about it. Sheila Zelinsky's book, Green Gospel, effectively demolishes what you think you know. So there you have it. Again, greengospel.ca. I really think it is worth the read And I sure wish I could put it in the hand of every believer out there to understand this devilish green agenda. I thank you so much for tuning into the program today. We will see you tomorrow. We've got a great show with Pastor Mike Hoggard. It's going to be great. We'll see you tomorrow. Good night and God bless you.